Chapter Fifteen of Delorme by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fifteen. Oh, life, thou strange, mysterious tie between the spirit and the clay! What is it makes the bravest of us shrink from that separation which the small dagger or the tiny asp can so easily effect? For a moment I lay to recover myself from all the agitated feelings that hurried through my heart, and then, struggling up, I rolled the ponderous mass of the dead man from off my breast, and rose from the ground. "'Is it Count Louis de Bigot?' said the voice of the Chevalier de Montenero. I answered that it was, and he proceeded. "'I thought so, infatuated young man. Why would you trust yourself in the hands of your enemy when you were warned of his cruelty and his baseness?' "'Because,' I answered, I thought that a person who had done injustice to me might also do injustice to him. "'When a man has the means of clearing himself and does not choose to do so,' replied the Chevalier, while understanding to what I alluded, "'he must rest under the imputation of guilt till he does. "'Now, sir, I leave you. Arnaud, give him your assistance and rejoin me tomorrow morning.' And so saying, without farther explanation, he turned his horse and galloped away. Though the evening light was of that dim and dusky nature which affords, perhaps, less assistance to the eye than even the more positive darkness of the night, yet I could very well distinguish by the height and form that the person the chevalier called Arnaud was not the little, large-headed procureur of Lourdes, but rather his son, and as soon as we were alone he confirmed my conjecture by his voice, asking if I were hurt not much jean baptiste replied i my hands are cut and he has grazed my throat with his knife but he has not injured me seriously catch my horse good arnaud i continued and ride on to the cottage about half a mile on the road bring some one with lights that we may see who this is though in truth i guess you had better take my pistols monsieur le comte said the honest youth lest there should be a second of these gentlemen in the wood I took one, and leaving him the other for his own defence, sent him on as fast as possible to the cottage, for although from the manner in which my assailant had attempted to effect my death, so like the Marquis de Saint-Brie's directions for killing the carp, I had little doubt in regard to whom I should find in the person of the dead man, yet I wished to ascertain the fact more precisely, that no doubt should remain upon my mind in regard to Monsieur de Saint-Brie himself soon after jean baptiste was gone the moon began to raise her head over the mountain and streaming directly down the road showed me fully the person of the dead man through whose head the ball of the chevalier's pistol had passed in a direct line causing almost instantaneous death all doubt was now at an end there lay the large heavy limbs of the man who had been called monsieur de simon while his steeple-crowned hat appeared rolled to some distance on the road the effects of the dreadful struggle between us were visible in all his apparel his doublet was torn in twenty different places with the straining grasp in which i had held him and an immense black wig which he had worn as a sort of disguise had followed his hat and left his head bare in rising i had rolled him off me on his back so that he was lying with the beams of the moon shining full in his face 
I advanced and gazed upon him for a moment, and now, as he appeared with his shaved head and the phrase, or ruff, torn off his neck, I could not help thinking that his countenance was familiar to me. The mustachios and the beard, it was true, made a great alteration, but in every other respect it was the face of the capuchin who had joined in attempting to plunder me at Luce. I looked nearer, and remembering that in six months his beard would have had full time to grow, I became convinced that it was the same. I examined him attentively. I perceived a sort of packet protruding from a pocket in the breast of his doublet, and taking it out I found it to be a bundle of old and somewhat worn papers, wrapped in a piece of sheep's skin, and tied round with a leathern thong. Amongst these I doubted not that I should find some interesting correspondence between the subordinate assassin and his instigator, and consequently took care to secure them, after which I waited quietly for the return of Jean-Baptiste, who I doubted not would relieve me from my troublesome guard over the dead body, as soon as he could procure lights and assistance. His absence, of course, appeared long, but after the lapse of about ten minutes I began to perceive some glimmering sparks through the trees, and a moment after the inhabitants of the cottage appeared, men and children, with as many resin candles as their dwelling could afford. Jean-Baptiste was with them, but another personage of much more extraordinary mien led the way, bearing in his hand a candle about the thickness of his little finger, but which he brandished above his head in a manner of a torch, striding on at the same time with enormous steps and somewhat grotesque gestures. "'Where is the body?' exclaimed he, with a loud tone and vast emphasis. "'Where is the body of the sacred dead?' The man who asked this question was a man of about five feet three in height, fluttering in a point, whose ribbons and rags vied in number, while the brass buttons with which he was thickly strewed might, by their irregularity of position, have induced me to believe him to be a poet, had not his theatrical tone and air stamped him as a disciple of Thespis. Percé jusqu'au fond du cœur, d'une atteinte imprévue aussi bien que mortel, cried he, when he beheld the dead body. Oh, what would I have given to have been here when he was killed? Did he fall so at once? I beseech you, tell me, did he fall thus? And down he cast himself upon his back, in the attitude of the dead body. If anything could have rendered so dreadful a sight as the corpse of the murderer, with his blackened temples, clenched hands, and cold, meaningless glare of eye, in any degree ridiculous, it would have been to see the little player cast upon the ground, beside the vast bulk of the dead man, striving to imitate the position in which he lay, and every now and then raising his pert head from his mockery of death's stillness, and peeping over the corpse to see how the arm or the hand had fallen in dying. I was in no mood, however, for such fooleries. My head ached violently from the blow I had received above the eye. My hands, especially the one that had intercepted the stab of the knife, gave me intolerable pain. I was fatigued also, and fevered with the struggle and the agitation, so that my corporeal sensations were not at all favourable to the wretched player's buffoonery, even had the scene been one that admitted of merriment. Stirring him then rather rudely with my foot, I bade him rise and assist in carrying the body to the cottage. Up started the actor in a moment, 
and, taking the corpse by the feet, replied he was ready to do anything the manager bade him. One of the cottagers lent his aid, and we soon reached the cottage with our burden. Here all the women made a vast outcry at the sight of the dead body, but more still on beholding the state in which the assassin's efforts had left their young Count Louis, for I was now within the old domain of our old chateau. I know not whether from the loss of blood or the irritating pain of the wounds, but I certainly felt very faint, and probably my countenance showed how much I was suffering, for while the young Arnaud and some others were examining the person of the dead man, and taking what papers and effects he had upon him, the player stepped forward and offered to render me his assistance as a surgeon. Thinking that the devil of buffoonery still possessed him, I repulsed him somewhat rudely, but yet, unrepelled, he laid his hand upon his heart, made me a low bow, and said, Listen, noble youth, scion of an illustrious house, and you shall hear that which shall make you yield yourself to my hands, as willingly as Maladine gave herself up to Milsenio. Know then, before my superior genius prompted me to fit on the buskin, I trod the stage of life in a high-heeled shoe, not, indeed, the Cothurnus, far, far from it, for in those days, alas, though I was clothed in tragic black, and held the dagger and the bowl, I shed real blood behind the curtain, and inflicted my cruelties on the real flesh and blood. "'I begin somewhat to understand you,' I replied. "'But if you would have me attend to you seriously, my friend, you must drop that exalted style, and speak common sense in common language.' "'Well then, sir, I will,' he answered, instantly changing his tone, and taking one which strangely blended in itself insignificance and sharpness, but which harmonised much better with his little eager countenance and twinkling black eyes than his tumid, bombastic loudness had done. "'What I mean is that before I went on the stage, I studied under an apothecary. My disposition is not naturally cruel, and I was not hard-hearted enough to succeed in that profession. Now, though, with the devil's assistance and my master's skill, I aided in conveying many a worthy patient from their bed to their coffin.' yet I think I remember some few simples that would allay the irritation of your wounds, and I will undertake for their innocuousness. No surer aid was at hand, and therefore I willingly allowed the metamorphosed apothecary to bandage up my forehead with such applications as he thought fit, as well as to use his skill upon my hands, and certainly the ease which I derived from his assistance fully repaid the confidence I had placed in him. In the meanwhile, the body of the murderer had been searched, and the various objects found upon him being brought to me, proved to consist of nothing more, besides the packet of papers which I had already taken, than a few pieces of gold, one or two licentious letters and songs, a pack of cards, some loaded dice, a missile, two short daggers and a rosary, all articles very serviceable in one or other of his callings. One of the cottage boys had by this time caught the horse which this very respectable person had ridden, and strapped upon it behind was found what at first appeared a cloak, but which proved upon examination to be a capuchin's gown, confirming my opinion in regard to the owner's identity with the card-player at loose. When this examination was over, I prepared to mount my horse and proceed home, 
but before i went i turned to gaze once more upon the lifeless form of my dead adversary and in looking upon his clumsy limbs and obesity of body i could not understand how he could have so easily overcome me endowed as i felt myself to be with equal strength and far superior agility the sudden surprise could alone have been the cause and i resolved through my future life to struggle for that presence of mind which in circumstances of danger and difficulty is a buckler worth all the armour of achilles after this i bestowed a gold piece upon the player apothecary for the ease he had given me and bade him come over to the chateau de l'orme the next day for a farther reward and then escaping as fast as i could from his hyperbolic thanks i mounted and accompanied by jean baptiste rode on towards my home my first question as we went was how long the chevalier had returned from spain and what had brought him on the road towards lourdes at that time of night at first jean baptiste seemed somewhat reserved but upon being pressed closely on the subject his frank nature would not let him maintain his silence and he informed me that the chevalier had returned that very morning from spain but on hearing that the marquis de saint brie had been received as a visitor at the chateau and that i in return had gone to pass some time with him he had desired the young procureur to accompany him and set out for bagnères without delay saying that i must be saved at all risks but still continued jean baptiste you have done something in spain to lose the chevalier's love for though he would come away after you to-night in spite of all my father could do to prevent him he always took care to say for his father's sake for his mother's sake he would rescue count louis from the dangers into which he was plunged the gloomiest knell that rings over the fall from virtue must be to hear of the lost esteem of those we love that must be the dark the damning scourge which drives on human weakness to despair in crime could the great fallen angel ever have returned i do not believe it the glorious confidence of heaven was lost and mercy would have nothing without oblivion i felt that my friend did me wrong but even that did not save me from the whole bitterness of having lost his regard and i internally asked myself what would my feelings have been had i really merited his bad opinion where is the chevalier demanded i is he at his own house no answered the young man he is at my father's at lourdes my determination was taken immediately to ride over to lourdes the next day and explain to the chevalier my conduct as far as i could with honour to represent to him that i was under a most positive promise not to disclose to any spaniard the events of that night wherein his suspicions had been excited and to add my most solemn asseverations to convince him of my innocence my pride i will own struggled against this resolution but still i saw in the chevalier's conduct towards me a degree of lingering affection which i could not bear to lose the good spirit triumphed and i determined to sacrifice my pride for the sake of his esteem these thoughts kept me silent till our arrival at the chateau de l'orme where my appearance in such a state i need not say created the most terrible consternation but i will pass by all that suffice it that i had to tell my story over at least one hundred times before i was suffered to retire to bed helen happily was not present when i arrived but my mother's embroidery woman did not fail to wake her 
as I afterwards heard, for the purpose of communicating the agreeable intelligence, and doubtless made it a thousand times worse than it really was. My poor Helen's night, I am afraid, was but sadly spent. However, when I had satisfied both my father and mother that I was not dangerously injured, and related my story to every old servant in the family who thought they had a right to be as accurately informed in regard to all that occurred to Count Louis as his confessor, I retired to my chamber, and while the maitre d'hôtel fulfilled the functions of Ousay in assisting to undress me, I opened the packet I had found upon the monk, and examined the papers which it contained, but, to my surprise, I found nothing at all relating directly to the Marquis de Saint-Brie. The first thing that presented itself was a regular certificate of the marriage of Gaston-François de Bagnol, Count de Bagnol, with Henriette de Verne, dated some seventeen years before, with the names of several witnesses attached. Then followed a paper of much fresher appearance, containing the names of these witnesses, with the word DEAD marked after one, and the address of their present residence affixed to each of the others. Then came a long epistolary correspondence between the above Count de Bagnol and various persons in the town of Rochelle, at the time of its siege, by reading which I clearly found that though influenced by every motive of friendship or relationship to give his aid to the rebellious Rochellois, had constantly refused to do so, and that in consequence the accusation which the Chevalier informed me had been brought against that young nobleman must have been false. On remembering also the cause of enmity which the Marquis de Saint-Brie had against him, and associating that fact with the circumstance of my having found these papers on the body of an assassin hired by the same man, I doubted not for a moment that the charge had been forged by the Marquis himself, and these letters withheld on purpose to prevent the Count from establishing his innocence. Why the Marquis had let them pass from his own hands I could not divine without indeed he considered them as valueless now he had taken care that the justice or injustice of this world could no way affect his victim i knew that he was far too much a lover of this life alone to value in his own case or that of others the cold meed of posthumous renown long before i had finished these reflections and the reading of the letters the maitre d'hôtel who as i have said supplied Ousset's place had done his part in undressing me, and soon, after ordering my horse to be ready early, I dismissed him and slept. Before closing this chapter, however, I must remark that, for many reasons, I had restricted to the safe guardianship of my own breast the various reasons that led me to suppose the Marquis de Saint-Brie had instigated the attack under which I had so nearly fallen. The suspicions of both my parents turned naturally in that direction, but I well knew that if my father had possessed half the knowledge which I did upon the subject, he would have allowed no consideration to prevent his pursuing the Marquis with the most determined vengeance, to the destruction, perhaps, of all parties. I therefore merely described the attack, but withheld the circumstances which preceded it, and though there are few actions in a man's life which do not either afford him regret or disappointment, this piece of prudence is amongst the scanty number I have never had cause to wish undone. End of chapter 15